Father, uh, just want to, uh, again, just acknowledge your presence and uh, submit ourselves to you. We pray that you would um, take the scripture and apply it to our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that we have come in as a certain person, that we would leave a little different, maybe more like Christ. Maybe there would be one or two or many in this room who have yet to come to know Christ in a saving way. I pray that you'd save them. Uh, and for those of us who do know you, Jesus, I pray that you would sanctify us, make us more like you, mature us a little bit more, chip away a little bit of the rough edges. Help us to understand how at the tomb you overcame death, that you put death to death for those who believe. And so we pray that you'd speak to us this morning, that you would be glorified in all that we do. Thank you again for these folks. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm just going to give you a few stats. In 2013, heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease, stroke, cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, the flu, and pneumonia those particular diseases and ailments killed 1.7 million U.S. citizens just in the year 2013. There were also, in 2013, there were 130,000 accidental deaths. I didn't look to see what they meant by that. I, I would imagine it was, these were unintentional deaths, maybe car accidents and these various things, maybe a work-related injury that led to death. 130,000 in the U.S. in 2013. There were 41,000 suicides in 2013. That's a lot of people that took their own lives. That's a lot of death. There were 15,000 homicides, murders. There are currently 155,000 deaths worldwide each day. 155,000 people die in our world each day. That's 56.5 million each year. These are just like sobering stats. I, I really never had looked into these things, and I was really startled when I did. This past week, dozens of people were killed in Belgium when uh, radical Muslim suicide bombers blew themselves up. About a month ago, uh, an old past colleague of mine, uh, he called me, and it was on a Sunday after church, and he was blowing me up via text during church, but I couldn't get back to him, because obviously, and I got back to him afterwards, and he wanted me to go to uh, Emmanuel Lutheran in uh, Turlock to, uh, he's not a believer or anything like that, and I found it to be astounding that he wanted me to come. He said, you're the only holy person I know. And I said, if only you knew. Um, but he, he, I, I think that meant Christian, so, and I said, well, of course I'll come out there. What's going on? And he says, my, my, uh, my grandmother-in-law is uh, dying, and I'd like for you to just come over and maybe encourage, encourage us and, and maybe pray for her or something like that. And I said, of course, I'll, I'll be there as soon as I can. I got right out there and walked, walked into her room, and, you know, there she was on, the, uh, on her bed and just breathing her last breaths. In fact, every ounce of energy that this poor lady had uh, was used just to breathe. Her entire body was involved in trying to get breaths. And uh, 
she passed away a few hours after I, I left, and obviously they were heartbroken, but, you know, death is, it's everywhere. You know, we see it on TV, uh, we see it in our community, and from time to time, we, we see it in our, maybe in our neighborhood, maybe in our, the lives of our friends, we most certainly see it in our own families and our own churches. And, you know, the thing is, is that it's kind of sobering because every time I see someone who's died or I have to go to one of these things, I'm reminded of the futility of life and, and you know, not just how precious it is, but I'm, I'm, I'm just reminded that, you know, of my own mortality, that someday I'm going to breathe my last breath and be in a similar situation, of course, unless the Lord returns and anyone who's found to be in him will be caught up with him. So I kind of hope that comes first, but... Uh, for the most part, whenever we see death, especially when you see it with your own eyes in a hospital or something like that, it sobers you, it reminds you that life is a vapor, it's short, and that everyone dies. It reminds me that, that I'm facing it, that uh, I think someone once said that 100% of people born die. No one escapes it. Uh, one person escaped it. And that is a true stat, isn't it? It is. Um, Horace put it like this. He said, death beats equally at the poor man's gate and at the palaces of kings. That's a pretty neat way to put it. No one escapes it. It takes out the poor, it takes out the wealthy, or what have you. And I, I would say this, that with death comes, or at least the notion of death, comes great fear. Uh, I think maybe if we're going to be honest that, uh, that when we ponder the end of our life, that we're one day going to breathe our last breath, that there is some anxiety, some anxiousness, maybe some fear that stirs up. It's not something that, you know, that we're really wanting to, uh, to experience. A few, few years ago, uh, I don't know if it's a well-known blogger, but a blogger did some quite a bit of research and compiled a list of People's top fears. And this gal weeded out spiders and all that stuff, although I would say arachnophobia is pretty serious for people. Um, I don't have a problem with spiders until one's on me. Uh, but, you know, she weeded out all of those things, not that those things aren't important, but this is what she came up with. Number 10 would be losing your freedom. Apparently for most people, losing your freedom made the top 10 list. Whether that be incarceration or what have you, I don't know. Number nine would be the unknown. Uncertainty strikes great fear in people. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to become of me. I don't know what's going to happen with my career. That's number nine. Number eight would be pain. People fear pain. I think so much so today that they actually create pain for themselves. Maybe they've tasted pain a little bit in their life through an illness or an injury, and then now they, you know, they're healed, but now they spend all their time worrying that they're going to experience that pain again. But that's number eight. Number seven would be disappointment. People fear disappointment. They do not want to be disappointed. And many do not want to disappoint others, and so they live with the fear of doing that. Six would be misery. Five, loneliness. Many people fear to be alone. Uh, it's probably why we keep ourselves so busy with things when we are alone. 
Uh, the phenomenon today is, you know, the phone in face. And everywhere I go, I'm, I'm, I'm driving down McHenry yesterday for crying out loud, and I'm, I, I noticed, I don't know why I noticed, but there were people sitting at the bus stop. There were five people on the bench crammed together, and each one of them was doing this under their phone. I don't know if they didn't know each other. Maybe they did know each other, and that's the best way to get away from the person they know. I don't know. But people do not like loneliness. They fear it, and boy, these smartphones have just become a crutch, I guess. Four would be ridicule. People fear being ridiculed, especially in a public setting. There's nothing worse than that, Uh, maybe. Number three would be rejection. Rejection, people fear being rejected. Number two is death. And I thought that was interesting because I would have figured that that would have been number one. Number one was actually failure. People fear failing at things or having others fail them. Now, this blogger went on to explain the reason why death is number two instead of number one. First thing that came to mind to me, I think death is probably one of the big ones. She said it's because people avoid the very thought of death. Death isn't the first thing that comes to one's mind when you survey people. But when you remind them of death, all of a sudden it gets on the list and gets moved up. We have done an exponential job at ridding ourselves of the notion of death. We don't think about death. When it comes, we try to, we try to thrust it away. We try to jettison it from our minds, from our memory, from anything. We try to even drown out the experiences where we've seen others die. We ju- it's just not something that we want to ponder. It's not something that we want to think about. And honestly, it's not something that we want to face. And I think that's why it's not number one. In fact, it seems like when she surveyed people, that one wasn't on the list at all until she brought it up. And then they said, oh, oh, man, I almost forgot. Death, you're right. Put that up there. Uh, Woody Allen once said, I am not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And what he was actually saying is that he was very, very frightened of death. Now, this morning... I want to talk to you about death, and I want to talk to you about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The title of this sermon is just like the song that we just sang. It is The Death of Death. Now, the first thing that I'd like to deal with is the origin of death. How did death enter our world? Where did it come from? None of us like it. How did it enter? Well, I'll tell you, death entered our world through sin. Romans 5.12 says, when Adam, who's the first person created, Adam and Eve, you've probably heard of them, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Romans 6.23 kind of nails it. It says that the wages of sin is death. In other words, sin perpetuates death. Sin produces death. If you were to get paid for your sin, your payment, your paycheck is death. Sin kills, is what he's saying. Sin and death go hand in hand. One produces the other. 
And the reality is, is that as long as sin remains, death will also remain. In other words, the only way to get rid of death, you have to get rid of sin. Because one produces the other. Now let's talk about God's promise. Nearly 800 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, the great Old Testament prophet, and and they call him the Shakespeare of the Bible, Isaiah foretold that God would one day put death to death once and for all, that he would eliminate it completely, that it would be, our world would be rid of it. Isaiah said it like this, and we heard it as our friend Cameron read a moment ago, he will swallow up death forever. He will swallow up death forever. Now, when Isaiah wrote this verse, Israel was suffering tremendously. The northern and southern kingdoms had fallen into sin, into rebellion, into idolatry, which was their pattern, which, so you know, is the pattern of all humans, not just Israel. We don't want to blame them. It's all of us. They had fallen into sin, rebellion, and idolatry once again, and God was allowing her enemies to attack and overcome them. It wasn't long after this that Nebuchadnezzar marched in and took them into exile. So in the midst of this great suffering, they were being conquered by various rulers and leaders. The kingdom was, uh, both kingdoms, northern and southern, were in turmoil. It was just a terrible, terrible time in Israel's history. But in the midst of the destruction, in the midst of the despair came a ray of hope in the form of a prophetic reminder. God had promised to send Israel a Messiah, one who would put an end to their suffering, put an end to death once and for all. In a way, Isaiah 25, 8a, which is our verse of focus today, it is a twofold promise. When God does away with death, Forever, as he said, he will swallow it up. He will also do away with sin forever. Why? Because sin is the cause of death. If you eliminate death, sin has to have gone too. Now, the broader implication of this promise, okay, I would say the global implication is that this promise, when it happens, when God fulfills it to the fullest extent, will produce global peace. Because the earth will become the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of the Lord. And the Messiah's kingdom, the millennial kingdom, his kingdom will be characterized by two things in particular, righteousness and peace. Isaiah 9, 7 says that. Another prophecy that he was giving. When the Messiah comes, he will establish his kingdom, death, sin, gone. What will prevail then? What will reign? Righteousness and peace. Now, the promise of Messiah predates Isaiah by many, many, many centuries. We see traces of it all the way back in Genesis 3.15, where God said that the seed of Eve, that's Messiah, would crush the devil's head. And also in Genesis 22.18, where God said Abraham's offspring, referring to his lineage, but in particular Messiah who would come through his lineage, he would what? The one who comes through Abraham later, he would bless the nations. Now this promise of Messiah, this promise of putting sin to death, putting death to death, this millennial kingdom and all of this great stuff, this promise was 
and still is today the hope of Israel. And really, in a broader sense, the hope of the world, unfortunately, the world really doesn't understand it, and neither does Israel for the most part. They understand aspects of it. Now, what if I was to tell you, though, that part of this promise has already come true and that Easter points to its reality? Wouldn't that be good news? Easter shows us that God has dealt with the cause of death, sin, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. At the cross, God laid the sins of His people, the elect, both Jew and Gentile, right? That's non-Gentile. Upon His only begotten Son, the perfect spotless Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus. And when Jesus died during the ninth hour, the full and final atonement was made. In other words, sin was dealt the death blow. The law of God was fulfilled in that moment. The price for our sins was paid. The justice of God was satisfied. The way of reconciliation was secured. At the cross, Jesus defeated sin. Easter also reminds us, because, right, we have Good Friday, the day that he was sacrificed on a cross, that reminds us that he put the death blow to sin. Easter also reminds us that God raised Christ from the dead, thus conquering death and showing how he will swallow up death once and for all in the future. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus is a foreshadow or forepicture of how death will be dealt with in the future. By God once and for all, Isaiah 25, 8a. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on, the, puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. In this verse, Paul was writing about the future resurrection of the saints. He cited Isaiah 25, 8a, our passage. You see, right now we have, these, we have these perishable and mortal bodies. But when the Lord returns in glory on the day of salvation, those who, who, who are in Christ shall receive imperishable and immortal bodies, which are fashioned for everlasting joy and everlasting worship. That, my friends, is the message of Easter. That is the Easter message. That is why Christians come together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His resurrection points to our future resurrection and the fulfillment of Isaiah 25, 8a. At the resurrection, Jesus defeated death. That is the message of Easter. Now how do we... Or how can we, I should say, benefit from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus now? Because, you know, as believers, we're, we're talking about a future, you know, resurrection body, if you will. It's like, okay, so what? This greatness and this awesome thing that we'll receive if we're in Christ is delayed. So are there any benefits to the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ now? What do we experience today? Yes, absolutely. There's, there's too many to list. It's not just that you're going to receive a resurrection body if you're in Christ, which is great. I could sure use one. I've got all kinds of pains. What else? How about peace and fellowship with God? 
Some of you have no clue as to what that is. You don't even know, you're not in Christ, you don't even know that you're at war with God. You don't even know that you're his enemy. I tell you, the moment that you experience peace with him, you realize who you were. Sometimes it's hard for us to get our minds because I spent more time as an unbeliever than I did as a Christian in my life, and so I had no concept of these things. I understand where you're at if that's you. But having peace and fellowship with God is the very thing that you were designed for in the first place. And you have no concept of that because you've never tasted it. You don't believe in God. Or maybe you believe in some generalized mystical force. Peace and fellowship with God is something that you experience right now in life. And it's unlike any other form of peace and fellowship that you will ever experience in any other relationship. What else? How about the presence and power of the Holy Spirit? The third person of the Trinity. He is the one that invades the life of the believer. He comes in, he makes the believer a new person, he leads the new believer, he guides them, he has fellowship with them, he gives instruction, he gives joy and all these wonderful things. You have God himself living in you. In fact, it says in Ephesians chapter 1, you become, or the end of chapter 2, I can't remember where it is, don't quote me, but it says that you become the very dwelling place of God. Because you see, the time of residing in temples and buildings that were built out of stone by human hands, that time, that dispensation for God has ended. You will never find him in another temple, but you will find him in a temple, the temple of his people. He doesn't even, this isn't even his home. This is a place where he comes and he's here when we're here. He's, he's wherever I go because I am his dwelling place. Having the Holy Spirit in your life is amazing. It's He's a source of power. He's a source of encouragement. He's a a teacher. He he corrects us, lovingly corrects us when we sin. He's amazing. Third, sanctification. And what that means, this is something else you experience now, what that means is that you're being made more and more in the image of Christ who was the, the, the person who loved in purity, who wasn't selfish, who was perfect in every conceivable way. And the whole idea of salvation is that you would be conformed to his image. It says that in Ephesians as well, that you would be made in his likeness, in your attitude, in your actions, and all those things. Now, do you become perfect as he was perfect in your life, during your lifetime? No, 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 that happens in glory later. But there is a thing called progressive sanctification. When you're a believer, you're being made more and more like Christ And I can tell you this, after spending 30-something years of being Phil, don't want to be him anymore. All he's done is wreak havoc and mess up. The heart cry of the true believer is that he or she wants to be like Jesus because they see him not only as a savior but as a perfect model, uh, uh, the perfect friend He is perfect. And that's one of the ultimate benefits is that you are made like him. Fourth, eternal security. You see, the Holy Spirit seals the believer in redemption. There's no way to bring, there's no way for the believer to bring himself out of his salvation. He can't sin his way out of it. 
It's eternally secured by the stamp approval and presence of the Holy Spirit, thus giving that person assurance of their faith, eternal security. And I tell you what, one of the greatest things in anyone's life, you don't have to worry about uncertainty anymore. You know where you're going. That's one of the things that made the top 10 list of fear. People have, that's one of the things that drives them. That's, that's what's so scary about death is the uncertainty that comes with it. People don't know where they're going or what's happening. And so we concoct and create all sorts of ideas. Well, I think we're annihilated. I think we just disappear. I think that's just it. And when you're in Christ, you have eternal security. You know that you will spend eternity in the presence of God. Pure elation, pure joy, pure happiness. No more tears, no more death. And you can rest in God's promise to bring to completion his salvation, which ultimately, when we see that in Scripture, it says the good thing that he began in your life as a believer. I started salvation with you. It says he will carry it all the way through to the end. He will bring it to fruition, completion. That's eternal security, knowing where you're going, knowing where you're headed. And I tell you what, as a believer, when you start living for the other side, eternity, which is a heck of a lot longer than 70 years, you have great peace. You can actually function in life pretty good when you're aimed, aiming your eyes on heaven instead of on all of the concerns and cares and troubles and tribulations and struggle in life because life is hard. But when you have eternal security, life it becomes easier to deal with. You can reflect upon glory in the future. That's one of the greatest things. Number five would be perpetual grace, never-ending grace from God, never-ending mercy from God, never-ending forgiveness from God. And it's only when we begin to realize that we have these, these things as Christians that we can begin to extend them to others in the right way. But how wonderful would it be for you to know that if you were in Christ that you have a never-ending supply. It can never be depleted of God's grace, God's mercy, and God's forgiveness. He's not like us, friends, in that when somebody sins against us and does something, we get ticked off and hold a grudge, put it in the archive, pull it out later for use. He doesn't keep a record of our wrongs. The blood of Jesus was enough to satisfy his justice and wrath once and for all, to cleanse us perfectly even though we continue to sin. Not that we desire to sin anymore, we're now in warfare against it, but it's our reality. Anyone who claims to not have sin is deceived. Christians sin just as unbelievers sin. But for the Christian, he or she has never-ending grace, mercy, and forgiveness from God. It's unreal. And, and some of you, you don't know Jesus. You, you've, never, you, you've never given your heart to him and all that. And I understand where you're at. And, and you have no concept of what God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness is. You, you probably don't realize that the reason why you function the way that you do, the reason why if you're a mean-spirited person, if you don't forgive, if you're a grudge person, if you're a malice person, or if you're an angry person, you don't understand that it's not that relationships down on this level that are perpetuating that. It's the fact that you're not right with your heavenly father, father your creator. You see, once you have it at this level, the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness, then you can begin to experience it down here at this level. And what do we do? Instead of, instead of submitting ourselves to the scripture, instead of submitting ourselves to the gospel, we go to psychotherapists, psychiatrists, 
psychologists, and all they're doing is trying to incrementally improve our lives while at the end of the day we're exactly who we were before we went into the meeting for six months to no avail. You have perpetual grace, mercy, and forgiveness coming from the Father through the Son. You have joy unshakable. Joy unshakable, meaning that it doesn't leave. You experience a death in your family, there's a tragedy, there's something that happens, you mess up and sin and fall bad, whatever, joy remains because it comes from God. It's like supernatural. We have a joyless world. That's why there's so much despair, that's why there's so much pain, that's why there's so much hurt and violence. People need to experience the joy of God. Changes your life. Hope. Hope is something that you have. Perpetual hope. We all need hope. In fact, we're all hoping in something. Maybe you're hoping in your spouse. Maybe you're hoping in your job. Maybe you're hoping in your income. Maybe you're hoping in your tax refund. Boy, we'll be able to do some things when we get that. I won't be doing much, but paying, just so you know. You place your hope in anything other than God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, and your hope is as flimsy as life is flimsy. How about an identity? One of the great problems in the world today is identity. People struggle with identity. Why do you think there's so many clubs? Why do you think there's so many groups? Why do you think there's so many things that people are engaged? Well, I'm this. Well, I'm that. I'm a part of this. I'm a part of that. Everyone is trying to carve out for themselves or find some kind of identity for themselves. Everyone wants to be classified as something today. Well, I'm a this, this, or I'm a that, that. We have identity crisis today. And in Christ... Salvation has to do with giving you an identity. You are a child of God. There is no higher rank. There is no greater privilege. There is no greater joy than to be a son or daughter of the Most High God in and through Jesus Christ. You you don't have to be a this or a that anymore. You can just be a Christian. You can just be a child of God. And take peace and enjoy that identity. It's fantastic to be identified with God in that way. How about purpose? People are looking for purpose today. I'm trying to figure out what my life is to be about. I'm trying to figure out why I'm here. I'm trying to figure out what it's all about. What is my purpose? And unfortunately, we tie that usually all up into some kind of a career or something. Well, my purpose is to be a surgeon. Okay, well, that's a great career, but that's not really your true purpose. In fact, that can be pretty empty after you work all the hours and realize you destroyed your family because you were never home and everything else. People want purpose today. That, again, is tied to identity. And you know what your purpose is as a believer, as a Christian? You're a servant of God. No higher calling in life than that. Oh, well, you can be a president, you can be... Oh, these are great callings, they're high callings, but nothing. There's nothing compared to being a servant of God. A humble servant of God outranks everything in this world. One who puts out cookies on a Sunday morning. I'm serious. Purpose, you're a servant of God. You're called to a high calling of serving 
God in Christ. It's wonderful. And I'd say lastly, number 10, the fellowship of believers. This is a now benefit, the church. There is nothing on earth that I have experienced yet quite like the fellowship of believers. Where you have like-minded people who love Jesus, who love each other, who want to be like Jesus, who want to serve one another, who are selfless, who care more about the person standing next to them than themselves. That's the church. Now, I get it. The church can be ugly at times because guess what? It's filled with sinners. Someone once said, you know, one of these days I'm going to find the perfect church. And I'm like, yeah, but as soon as you enter it, you just defiled it. It's filled with sinners who are saved by grace. But there's nothing quite like the fellowship of the saints. To rally around the cross, to rally around each other, to love each other with a brotherly love and affection is just... It's unreal, it's nourishing, it's satisfying, it's tremendous. Those are ten things. Okay, so, so the resurrection body's coming. That's, that's like the ultimate thing. But you have all of these amazing things that happen here and now. So salvation isn't just about heaven. I hate it when people preach that. Well, you need to get saved so you can go to heaven. Okay, what about now? These are just a handful of things that you experience now. Let's talk about the judgment of unbelievers. What happens to those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, who do not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who remain as they are? Will they receive a resurrection body? Yes. But their resurrection bodies will not be fashioned for everlasting joy and worship, but for everlasting suffering. Everlasting suffering. Long after the... um, return of Christ at the end of his millennial reign and kingdom, God will raise up every, every unbeliever for final judgment. They too will receive a resurrection body, but as I said, it's not one for glory. Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15 says, and this is a prophecy about this time, this moment in the, in the future that will come, and I saw a great white throne and one sitting on it, The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, that's those outside of Christ, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead. There's that resurrection of the dead And all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not recorded, found recorded in the book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire. Now the lake of fire is the final destination of the devil, of the Antichrist, of the false prophet, of death itself, and the final destination for all unbelievers. The lake of fire, however, does not consume, as we might think, because fire consumes. It does not consume. It does not result in annihilation, as some propose. It is a place of everlasting torment, Revelation 20, verse 10, and is referred to as the second death. Death, Revelation 20, verse 14, I just read it. 
The idea is that no one comes back from this state of death, neither physically nor spiritually, because it is permanent and fixed. There is no chance after this death. It is called Gehenna in the Bible. Gehenna means Valley of Hinnom, referring to a valley just outside of Jerusalem. In Jesus' day, the city residents used this valley as a garbage dump. They kept a fire constantly burning there to destroy refuse. Maggots consumed anything that the fire did not reach. Jesus used Gehenna as a symbol of everlasting destruction in Matthew 23, verse 33. He said this to the religious leaders who were a bunch of hypocrites. You know, they were lying about their faith. They didn't have faith on the inside. They had these outward appearances. We've all met hypocrites like that. He said this to them. He called them snakes. He said, you son of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? Translation, Gehenna. Now, let's talk about the way of salvation briefly. How can a person escape this horrible judgment and receive all of Christ's blessings, the things that I've mentioned, including this incredible resurrection, of, resurrection body, which is fashioned for glory and joy and worship? How? How do you escape this terrible, terrible judgment that is coming? Now, don't fool yourself thinking that, okay, well, that's way off in the future. I don't have to worry about it. No, actually, when you pass away now, you are set aside for that moment. And you're still suffering, waiting for that moment to come. So you suffer all the way through till this moment happens. And then from there on out, it intensifies. How do you escape it? And how do you receive this glorious resurrection body? Jesus made it very simple. You repent and believe the gospel. Mark 1, 15. You repent and believe the gospel. Repentance has to do with turning away. It has to do with making like a 180, turning away from your self-sufficiency. Because that's what we all do. We're all by nature as fallen sinners, earners, and we all think that we can earn our way with God. We think that at the end of time, he'll break out a scale, and on one side, he'll have our good deeds, and on the other side, he'll have our bad deeds. And, and our, whole, our entire hope is based on, well, I hope that I've outdone the bad with the good, and that'll be heavier, and then he'll let me into heaven and the resurrection body and all that. We're all, by nature, earners. We think that doing good earns us something with God, when in fact it says in Isaiah that our best deeds done outside of faith in Christ are nothing but filthy rags. They're meaningful. They're useless. And so repentance has to do with turning away from self-sufficiency, turning away from that earning mentality, turning away from being a, a do-gooder thinking that that's going to help you out, turning away from works and, you know, that are based on false religion and turning to Jesus Christ. So you turn away from I'm earning it, turning it to the merits of Christ. I'm putting my faith in what he, who he is and what he has done. And believing the gospel, as Jesus said, believe the gospel, it has to do with trusting in the person and work of Christ alone for your salvation. Not depending on yourself, not depending on your good. You've got to realize you're not good no matter what you do. The reason why you're where you're at in your life, if you've got a lot of trouble, and most people do, is because you're a sinner and you need grace and here's the reality. Jesus said you repent and believe the gospel. The reality is those who repent and believe the gospel, it says in Scripture, shall be saved. The apostle Peter preached the same 
gospel, that's the gospel in and of itself, preached the same gospel to several thousand Jewish pilgrims on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 were saved and then baptized. The Apostle Paul said the same thing. He preached the same gospel over and over during all of his missionary journeys. Everywhere he went, he preached, believe in Jesus, turn away from your self-sufficiency. He even did it in Philippi with a Philippian jailer. He was actually in jail, and he preached to a jail, the jailer, the guy himself. And, and that jailer and, and his whole household were saved, and then they were baptized as well. About 14 years ago, God intervened in my life. He, he rescued me. I was headed for divorce, drinking heavily again, and just, just headed down the, the old roads that I had traveled early in our relationship, so destructive, no trust, a couple little rugrats in the house not being a dad to them or caring about them, staying out all night carousing and partying and just... Just being an idiot. My wife says, you know, you need to start coming to church with me. She'd already been saved, and I can't imagine what that was like for her to live with me when she loved Jesus and I pretty much hated him. She said, you got to, something has to change, dude. We're, we're headed for a divorce court here. I can't live like this. Of course, I went to church with her for several months, kept looking at my watch going, this is the stupidest thing I've ever been involved in. Why are these idiots putting their hands up and singing these dumb songs? And then one day, the man preaching, everything he's saying has to do with me. What's going on here? Rachel, have you been emailing him? I don't even know him, Phil. I understood what he was saying. It made sense to me. It struck me. I was cut. I was broken. My life has never been the same. Of course, I repented and have been repenting ever since because repentance is a one-time act. Every day you have to choose Christ. But I repented and put my trust in Jesus Christ. My life has never been the same. He intervened by grace. And I'll tell you this morning, the same invitation. Is made to you. It's made to you. The same message is being the same message that's been preached for thousands of years is being preached to you now. And you know what the reality is? Is that God commands that you repent and believe the gospel. It's not that He just offers Jesus, He commands His created beings to submit to Him and believe in Jesus Christ. He commands that you do that, that you stop doing what you're doing and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It says that in Acts 17.30. He commands people everywhere to repent and believe. And I would just say this to you, friend. What are you waiting for? Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall receive the abundant life that he offers now, as well as everlasting life. What joy you'll have. What purpose and identity you'll have. What you've been looking for your whole life, you'll finally have. Now, I did mention baptism a moment ago. In the early days of the church, and this would be the time for you guys to go ahead and go because we do have some people that are getting baptized. I'll let them get up and step out. Go ahead and change. 
in the early days of the church, when people got saved, they usually got baptized right after. When people put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the next step was baptism. It was like whenever they preached the gospel, the next thing they know, they were baptizing people. Baptism is one of two sacraments that the Lord gave us. The other is communion. And you must understand what baptism is and what it represents. Baptism does not save us. Okay, if if baptism saved us, then that would be a work that we do to save ourselves. Baptism does not save us. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christ is the only Savior. Baptism, our works, they don't save us. Let's just understand that. Baptism, what is it? It's an expression of our faith. It is an outward expression of an inward reality. Okay, so the person who is saved, who is believing in Jesus, who is following Jesus, who has turned away from self-sufficiency and is trusting in the Lord alone, that is an inward faith, an inward reality. Baptism simply expresses what's happened on the inside of them, what's happened to them spiritually, if you will. So it's an expression of what they have already experienced. Baptism also symbolizes the washing away of our sins. It is the Holy Spirit who actually does this for us at the new birth, but baptism does illustrate the removal and washing away of our sin. It, it illustrates what has happened to us in a spiritual sense, in a physical way. Now let me give you just a couple of reasons why Christians should be baptized. Number one, it is commanded. Jesus commanded his disciples to baptize those whom they had taught, Matthew 28, 19, the implication is that those who have been taught the gospel, who believe it, should willingly submit to baptism. So baptism, primarily, number one, is a matter of obedience. It's a matter of a commandment. We are commanded to be baptized if we are a Christian. Number two, baptism does show obedience to Christ. Jesus commanded his followers to be baptized, and he expects them to obey all of his commands to the best of our ability. Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments, John 14, 15. So baptism is commanded, and then when we do submit to Christ and go and we get baptized, we are showing obedience to what Christ has commanded. And that is the heart cry of the believer. I want to obey my Savior. I want to obey my Lord. We express our love for the Lord by obeying Him. And thirdly, lastly, baptism testifies to the gospel. Baptism is a public testimony of the believer uh, that they have placed their faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. The death and burial of Christ is symbolized when you are immersed in the water. As you are brought, okay, so when you go under the water, it's as if you're being buried with Christ. That's the symbolism. You go under, you're buried with Christ. As you're brought up out of the water, the resurrection of Christ is symbolized. Likewise, when you are immersed in the water, it pictures the death and burial of your old self. So baptism also has to do with when you go under the water, you're saying, I'm going to die to myself, to my own desires, to my selfishness, to my self-sufficiency and all these things. You're getting buried with Christ, you're dying with him in a symbolic way, and you're dying to your old self. 
And then when you are brought up out of the water, it symbolizes being born again by the Spirit to walk in the newness of life as a child of God. So coming up out of the water represents being raised with Christ to new life. With that being said, we do have a handful of believers who have gone out to be baptized, to get ready for baptism. It is their desire to show you that they love Jesus, that they are committed to Jesus, and that they are committed to making his glorious gospel known.